This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Emotional power in game design. Adina Sackville. Crime magicians. And Ken's Rhode Island book raid. Robin, what's better than dinosaurs? Hmm, I don't think there is anything better than dinosaurs. How about dinosaurs plus 5e? Sold! Well, get ready, because the 5e prehistoric campaign setting, Plain Gia, is on Kickstarter now from Atlas Games. Wait, didn't they make Niambi and Northern Crown too? Yes, for third edition, plus Penumbra, so you know it's going to be excellent. Tell me more. Plangea is the prehistoric fantasy campaign setting for 5e, offering endless adventures in a vast, brutal world. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe. It has everything you love about 5e, but reimagined for a primal, prehistoric world. Plus dinosaurs. Live on Kickstarter until October 7th. Search for Plangea. That's plain as an airplane, then G-E-A. The thump of dice, the rattle of miniatures, and the ever-attentive eye of uh, Peter Frampton as he comes alive, uh, especially, he's, he's wrapped, Ken, because this is part three of, as is our Want With series, and so far unnumbered number of yeah. episodes. We don't know how long this is going to go because we're once again looking at the principles and axes of game design, and we're starting with a, a list that you insouciantly dashed off on Twitter and uh, trying to uh, refine it a bit and make bits of the list more like other bits of the list. And uh, at the end, we'll talk about what it means. Uh, but right now, we're partway into it. And so you've got uh, something that is not a, a slider so far. It's not an opposition. We'll have to make it into one. Power. Power in game design. Ken, it seems to me, first of all, that a game with a design that lacked power would just be flat out bad. Or, Ken, does power... Corrupt a game design? Absolutely. Mm. Well, first of all, I should say that this is another one of those things that I think when I use it, and I don't want to say when I used it in that tweet, because God knows what was going on in that tweet at this point. You, but, you were in an airport. You, yeah, you were right. uh, no doubt dazed by a Cinnabon. Right. And uh, choking on my own carbon dioxide, mask style. But the the power... It's a descriptor that I use for usually for a mechanic. And what I usually mean by that, although I'm sure I've used it more loosely than this, is that it is a game mechanic that drives you, like the power of an engine, drives you toward or into or deep into the game space, right? Into what the game thinks it's trying to accomplish for the players with the players. So a classic example of a powerful mechanic is the Sanity Death Spiral in Call of Cthulhu, which is one of the great game mechanics of all time. And simply by existing, it drives you into the space where your character is friable, they are expendable, and you are being forced every time you take meaningful action against the mythos to commit a sacrifice, to sacrifice some part of yourself. And that's what I mean by power, something that 
takes you from an ironic distance, maybe, or uh, what they call a tactical distance, a player moving a game piece around into the emotional space the game is meant to occupy. So another example of a phenomenal power mechanic is in uh, Julia Bond Ellingbo's Steal Away Jordan, the players don't get to name their characters. They're playing enslaved people in the antebellum South. And the GM names their characters. And that mechanic right there, you know, as trivial as it seems, I think that if you think even a little bit about it, you realize this is, this is a, a, a big step, right? It's a, it's a big power move. And obviously in play, it feels even more powerful because one of the few things you do get to control in a game often is what your character's name is. And that's been taken away from you arbitrarily. And, and so that's a very, another very powerful mechanic. And you can argue that other mechanics may have more or less power. I don't know that power necessarily always relates to theme. For example, I feel like you could argue things like Elizabeth Sampat's push pyramid, which I borrowed as the vampyramid for Knights Black Agents are also powerful mechanics in that they move the game along even if they don't move it into that emotional space, but they drive it because they make decisions that the GM doesn't have to, or that the GM, you know, it constrains uh, the GM so that they can pick creatively. You might argue that a, a, a random encounter table uh, does the same sort of thing by constraining decisions and, and focusing GM attention in a, a few areas instead of the whole monster manual. So I feel like that is how I usually use power. And I agree with you, Robin, that a game system that never does any of that. And I don't want to pick on GURPS here, but GURPS <laughs> has very few mechanics that drive power in that sense over and above the fact that you have precious few hit points, which is, I think, a, a big power call in GURPS, and that buying more of them is ridiculously expensive, even if you're playing very high-powered characters. The notion that that you have very few hit points is maybe a, a power move on GURPS's part, but I feel like most of GURPS is meant as this sort of ironic distanced tactical gameplay. And then they count on, uh, not unreasonably, the GM and the players to manufacture all the emotion in the same way that GURPS counts on the GM to manufacture the setting. And the GURPS will help you out with all kind of books. And some of those books have power mechanics, like, for example, the corruption mechanics in uh, GURPS Horror uh, that I and Sean Punch did. But by and large, GURPS does not value power in the same way that, say, you know, Call of Cthulhu or uh, many, many indie games such as uh, Steal Away Jordan or Dogs in the Vineyard, where the fact that if you escalate the combat from fists to knives, the dice get bigger, which means you're in more danger. That's another very powerful mechanic in my mind. Okay, so let's uh, workshop this a bit in our effort to turn it into a, a slider, into an op opposition. And the word power, I think can mean different things to different people. So that if you are entirely on the cerebral side of this, the scale, he says, foreshadowing uh, what the spectrum is going to look like, uh, <laughs> you may think that a very powerful mechanic is one where the, you know, the math is very strong and, and makes sense and never breaks down. But I think what we're looking at here is a range between emotion and detachment. Uh, detachment sounds a little pejorative, and our effort here with creating oppositions is to find ways that, of expressing these neutrally so that both are, you know, equally appealing. I don't want to go to the old role-playing versus role-playing canard, <laughs> uh, but it sounds like we're kind of in that, in that one of these is about emotion versus distance. 
And so the goal of the things that you describe as having high power is to create a, a rules dynamic that has an emotional effect on you the way that in a film, the music and the cinematography have an emotional effect. And from my own work, the general spends in gumshoe where you have to decide how much do I really want to succeed here? Cause I can be pretty sure of succeeding if I spend a couple of points, but what am I going to do later? That is also part of the, it's meant to uh, pull you emotionally into the experience and ask you, how much do I really care about this? And, and that's different than a D20 roll where it's like, if I roll well, I do well. If I don't roll well, I don't. But I'm not having to decide. I'm not having to stop and think how much I care and whether I'm willing to, to give up a, a resource. So, so you could argue then that there is, although it, it uh, gives up all the lovely work I just did setting up the notion of um, power as merely game motive force, but you can say game motive force is the spectrum and you're looking for smooth versus crunchy, although that, of course, will throw everyone off, but something like in which the game motive force is intended to turn the mechanics transparent, get them out of your way, make you not think about them, roll a die 20, did you do good? Great, we're moving. Or draw you emotionally into the game more than just did I win, did I not win, uh, which is sort of standard, but, you know, oh, do I really want to spend my last points on this athletics role, what if there's another cliff that I don't like that? Yeah, and I think it's almost almost a commitment versus a relaxation that people who are annoyed by that game mechanic in Gumshoe don't want to stop and think whether they care. Mm -hmm. And they don't yeah. want it to be an emotional decision. They want to be less emotionally engaged. They're not looking for things that make them uh, feel fraught. They're looking for something that they just describe as sort of uh, casual and fun. And so there's there's the emotional commitment of all the things you describe. And then there's the, you know, let's sit back and kick some bad guys. Let's, uh, and champions, let's roll a whole bunch of D6s. Let's argue about the rules, perhaps. I think we're looking at sort of, a, 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 yeah, I guess uh, emotional commitment versus, I, I, I guess it's sort of heart versus head almost, right? A little bit. Um, I, I think that, uh, and uh, Darren is going to just, you know, weep salty tears when he hears this. But I think that you can have a mechanic like champions that turns out to be, you know, neither, right? It's it, it neither uh, powers the game forward in terms of it's simple and easy to understand and uh, makes decisions for the GM or for the players in the way that the random mechanic does or the simple die 20, because there's still a lot of stopping. You're just stopping for a different reason. And so... I don't, is it a three-handed uh, slider? And, I think or we're we, mixing up two things. We're mis You're mixing, mixing up, up how things. well the emotional engagement is created with whether there is emotional engagement. And I think right. those are two separate spectrums. Mm -hmm. And so for this one, let's stick with the emotional engagement part of it. Right. And so I guess almost it's sort of uh, emotional versus cerebral. Is that closer or are we still... Emotion versus distance. What's our what? What slider feels right to you, Ken? Well, remember you have to use this to describe a game, right? Right. So I would say, you know, if if you if you wanted to be fun with it, you could say it's effect versus affect. <laughs> that'll clear stuff up. <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll clear everything up. But I mean, but by fun you mean opaque. You're right. Exactly. That's what I. That's what I always mean is fun, Robin. Where Where have you been for the last 25 years? <laughs> I've only been listening to my half of the podcast. Right. That's wise. I I recommend that. Um, if you're listening out, just listen to Robin's half. You'll basically get what we're talking about. Um, yeah, I think that um, it's, it's a tough thing to 
to, to try and be, and I think partly because the notion of building a, a, a fun move along game, like say fifth edition, it's sort of the, um, the, the, the clear Heinlein prose, if you will, uh, that everyone's like, well, anyone can write like that. That's just normal writing. Fancy writing's where it's at. We like the fancy writing guy. And it's like, well, I don't know that Fitzgerald is worse than Joyce just because Joyce is, you know, layer upon layer upon layer of baklava meaning. Fitzgerald gets you there, right? He, he does his job. So I, I feel like there's almost a imputed criticism if we say, involved versus less involved or um like you say emotional versus cerebral i think that there is a that there's an intent will be read in into our in, into our rankings there and i i think a lot of it is because you know you and i i believe we come to a game assuming that the basic mechanics will function and if they don't we don't bother to look any further into it and once we have a game with basic functioning mechanics a la basic role playing then when someone adds something emotionally effective, that's what catches our eye. We don't praise Call of Cthulhu usually, or I don't at least, I don't think mo- many people do, for the clear, wonderful skeleton of Steve Perrin's BRP rules. What we praise it for are the, you know, the things that uh, drive it towards uh, Cthulhu. And some of those are, in fact, inherited from BRP. The, the low hit points, uh, again, is another example. But uh, I feel like we're almost setting up a uh, a normative difference if we say one's emotional and one's not. Right. Because I guess maybe what we're looking at is the degree to which design decisions direct emotion. That mm-hmm. are, they, are they consciously trying to get you to feel a particular thing the way that the sanity rules in Call of Cthulhu do or the general right. abilities in Gumshoe? Or are they creating a, just laying a platform for you to supply uh, your own emotion, uh, whether that comes up spontaneously, emergently in play, or whether it's something that you impose on it. I mean, even D&D, though, which is uh, we were holding up as a, uh, at least in the contrast with Gumshoe, as a, a less uh, emotionally directed system, still has powerful emotional drivers behind it leveling up, right? Yeah, right. So, yeah. But GURPS and basic role-playing have even less than that. So, you know, we've established a continuum. Look at us. Right. So we've got directed emotion. What's what's the opposite of that? What do we call the, uh, the d- directed versus laissez-faire? Directed versus ad hoc? Directed versus, or I know, we could call it uh, system-driven versus player-driven. Then everyone's, uh, the, this is about the emotional, the emotional matter of the game, the emotional mechanics of the game. Are they system-driven or are they player-driven? Right. So that's uh, emotion bracket player-driven versus uh, system-driven. Right. And so, okay, I think we've got a, a, we've finally got our spectrum and now we can look at as designers, you know, there are definitely, again, designers who philosophically go for A or for B. There Mm -hmm. are uh, players who prefer A or for B. Some of the players who want something to be player-driven don't want to actually drive it at all. They don't want to have an emotional experience at the table. Right, they want yeah. to have a tactical experience or a casual experience. Yeah, as you say, just uh, we're all here to kill orcs. We don't care. Right, and we don't want to think too much about how the orcs feel about it. We don't want to think too much how we feel about it. We want to think about our flanking bonuses. Right, yeah. So uh, I think we, we have hammered out our spectrum. We've got examples of games that fall in different uh, areas along that uh, road, and it's something that you can uh, think about as a designer, how much do you want to direct the emotion? And again, I think uh, designers definitely fall on one side or the other uh, philosophically as to uh, what sort of experience uh, they're 
uh, creating. Uh, coincidentally enough, just as we've defined what it is that we're talking about and why it would be of interest, we've completed this segment. And Look can, at us. We can move on to uh, whatever uh, lurks on the other side of this commercial. From the dread docks of Dilathleen to the poet-burning furnaces of Zar. You are having the weirdest of dreams. A dream of an otherworldly deal on Dreamhounds of Paris. The Trail of Cthulhu campaign that mixes Lovecraft's realm of oniric fantasy. With the dangerous art of the Surrealist movement. Pitting Dali, Cocteau, and Magritte against the mythos just got cheaper. Dreamhounds of Paris by Ken. And Robin. And Steve Dempsey. Is 25% off at the Pelgrane store. In print with PDF or PDF only. Add its inspirational fiction companion, The Book of Ants, and get 25% off that too. Only until September 30th. With the voucher code hashtag AntDream at the Pelgrane Press online store. The chamber music playing from the background, the busts on plinths, the beautiful frescoes and mosaics along the walls tell us we must be once more in the classiest version of the History Hut. And here in the History Hut, as we eat our finger sandwiches and drink our hock, we attend to the Molten Sulfur blog, beloved Patreon backers they, who ask us, and I believe they mean Robin, to tell me more on Lady Adina Sackville. And Robin, you've just been reading a biography of uh, the lady in question, and so you are, no doubt, a full of excitement and will explain to us why this interwar aristocrat matters to anyone except other interwar aristocrats, correct? Right. So the book in question is The Bolter by Frances Osborne, and uh, she is writing about the great-grandmother that she knew essentially nothing about because her existence was sort of a, a shameful family secret. There is big uh, disapproval of uh, Lady Adina, but it turns out that her life is... A, a very much a tale of, well, not just the interwar period, because she's very much living her life during World War I and is sort of a, a representative of the lost generation, especially in England, and of uh, changing mores, and especially changing mores about sex and marriage and adultery. So before there were influencers, before there were celebrities, uh, the people who were in the news were members of society. At least they were in the news in the UK and even in America. She got a lot of press coverage just for the details of her life. And so these were, you know, tabloid era stories. She would, uh, a focus of big gossip. It was uh, front page news, even in like the mainstream press when she would uh, come to America. Uh, she was a, a big deal. And her life intersects uh, with a lot of other people from this period, uh, just because people in that her strata of society uh, get around, meet other people. And there are some uh, cameos from people who would ordinarily belong in other huts on the show. So she was born in 1893. She is the uh, daughter of the eighth Earl of de Loire, uh, which Americans may know as the earldom after which uh, Delaware is named. And her mother is from a rich industrialist family. So it's that classic a union 
of aristocratic title without money and new money, industrialist money on both sides, on the different sides of the family. Adina's mother is an interesting character under her own right and uh, leads to an unconventional uh, upbringing in which uh, dad is not around uh, very much. He's gone off and is, uh, he's taken up with a, a chorus girl. And so her mother uh, is a uh, theosophist and uh, also a big time uh, socialist. And so she takes the family money and spends it all on socialism and on the suffragette movement, and uh, among other things, spending it on convincing all the men who run the socialist movement that somehow their universal brotherhood of men should also include women. Money well spent, no doubt. Money well spent. Uh, it, it worked. Uh, well, did it, though? <laughs> well, the, the, the suffragette movement worked, unless you want to come out against the, the suffragettes. On the, no, on I the mean, suffra suffragettism worked. I, I feel like uh, there's still work to be done amongst the socialist movement. Right. <laughs> um, so, among uh, the members of her uh, mother's circle when uh, Dina is growing up is Annie Bassat, the noted theosophist. And uh, very briefly, she decides that Dina's uh, brother, uh, Buck, uh, when he's a child, is the theosophist Messiah. But a couple of years later, she finds a better Messiah in India yeah, itself. Yeah, absolutely. A way better Messiah. Yeah, and he's, he's fired for that. So she grows up in a sort of a, a already sort of a bohemian, unconventional world, and she's trying to find her place in the world, and she does it through love. Uh, she's uh, someone who uh, needs to be uh, with a man, in fact, often sometimes with uh, many men, and uh, that uh, is what uh, makes her a, a scandalous uh, figure. So she winds up being married five times, all in all, and that's not counting the various uh, lovers. And the first one is a guy named Ewan Wallace, who is uh, rich, handsome, young. Uh, however, a little thing comes along called uh, World War I, and that ruins a lot of things for a lot of people. And among other things, he uh, goes off and he's an officer in uh, World War I, and whenever he comes back on leave, he increasingly is drawn away from Adina to uh, this social world of uh, friends led sort of by Adina's uh, younger sister, Avi, And he falls in love, or at least in lust, with a couple of uh, women, and uh, they are uh, pulled apart. And this is happening at a time when sexual mores are changing completely. Beforehand, among the aristocratic class, adultery is just a thing that happens as long as you follow certain rules. First of all, if you're a woman, you have to have uh, an heir and another male heir before you can start fooling around so that you, everything is clear. So the, the heir and a spare. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're then, uh, uh, husbands are having affairs with wives and wives are having affairs with husbands and everything is kept within the class and doesn't get into the newspapers, knows is embarrassed, uh, that's fine. But what Adina does, her big offense, uh, first of all, is that once uh, Ewan starts to uh, stray from her. Uh, she takes up with a, a man and they go around openly in public and eventually she divorces him. And this is a shocking thing, right? Adultery oh is fine, but divorce, that's not a thing. That can't be a thing. And as the lost generation becomes even more lost uh, during the war itself and then afterwards, shocking things start to happen. Like people start having sexual relations with their girlfriends, people who they aren't even married to and people start dating like outside of their class and in fact uh, there's an awful lot of sex and drugs and phonograph records uh, the, the drug is morphine 
the uh, songs on the phonograph records, I think, are mostly sort of salon music or maybe some very early jazz and the sax as well, sax. And so there's, yep. you know, there's 60s level orgiastic activity among uh, this group. And uh, Adina is very much a uh, part of that. So she winds up. Her second husband is a guy named Charles Gordon. She marries him in 1919. And with him, she, she takes him to, uh, to Kenya, uh, where they uh, set up a farm. And she becomes involved in what uh, is known as the Happy Valley set in uh, Kenya. Unlike a lot of other people who are uh, from the UK who are uh, working farms there, she uh, gets her hands uh, in and actually does, uh, she actually works her farm rather than ordering local people to do it. But Charles himself is a, a little bit indolent. And uh, again, they, they drift apart. And uh, next comes uh, Jocelyn Hay, who is an, another Earl. Uh, so she's rack- getting more uh, blue blood into the line. And Jocelyn is an even bigger player than she is. And so they have an open relationship, but it's a, uh, gets a little too open for them. He is also with her at a different farm in Kenya and uh, is ultimately stolen away from her uh, by another woman with an even nicer house in in Kenya. But they stay friendly. Uh, Next, uh, she marries David Squashy Haldeman and she stays married to him for uh, eight years. And unfortunately for someone who believes in open marriage, David Haldeman believes in shooting his wife's lovers. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, everyone gets a hobby. That seems fair. Right. It, it seems like, again... If she didn't believe in open marriage, he would have nothing to do. <laughs> uh, well, I guess you're right. They had incompatible uh, hobbies. Well, and so uh, it seems very compatible to me, yeah. frankly. And if, if someone's not willing to take the little extra risk of being shot by a man named Squashy, then... They don't deserve a Dinah Sackville. That's what I say. Well, she felt differently. She she did not want any of her lovers shot. Uh, none of them were shot, but some of them, one or two were shot at, and that's distressing enough. This is the difference between the gentle daughter of an earl and a proper American dilettante lady. An American dilettante lady wouldn't care who gets shot at. I'm just going to put that as a marker down. <laughs> yes, indifference to life is, is an American trait. And no, indiffer- uh, it, it, not indifference to life, indifference to gunfire. Robin, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll let the judges sort out that distinction. <laughs> and then finally, she marries uh, a guy named uh, Vincent Salthow, who's uh, known universally as Lynx, because that's the kind of plane he flies. And uh, he is a pilot, and they have a sort of a, a friendly uh, relationship. Uh, but uh, they drift away during the war. But he uh, has a better fate than her two sons. She's been estranged from her two sons that she had with her first husband, Ewan Wallace, and she divorced him. Part of the arrangement was she could never see them or be in contact with them again. Mm. The stepmother was to be treated as the mother. And this is why Adina Sackville was judged harshly by her family. How could a woman leave her sons behind? But that was the you know, if she was going to divorce, she had to leave the sons behind. She reunites with them when they uh, both come to uh, see her in the early days of the war. Uh, this is World War Two, so uh, her husband's life was uh, shaped by World War One. Uh, uh, they're uh, in World War Two, and uh, tragedy ensues because both of her sons are killed in the war. Uh, her sort of introverted intellectual son, who's studying classics and knows Greek. Uh, winds up in Greece with the partisans there and gets shot with the partisans there. And her uh, extroverted son, who she finally reunites with uh, while she's in Kenya, 
is killed in an aeronautical accident. So kind of the, the air goes out of her tires after that. She uh, is also uh, greatly affected in 1941 when husband number three, Jocelyn Hay, is murdered in Kenya Whoa. by a jealous husband. See, shooting at lovers, I still disapprove. And All right, Robin, fine, whatever. So he's found dead in his car. The local colonial court judges the uh, obvious culprit to uh, not, not have been guilty because it would be inconvenient and distressing to admit that uh, a white man could do a bad thing in Kenya. And, and also shooting someone who's uh, carrying on with your, with your wife is the done thing. But it's not the done thing. There's In Happy Valley, there is a lot of sex and drugs and phonograph records. Yeah, and very little shooting. That's right. the problem. If, if there was just more shooting, if we could just follow... You have different adultery rules. The adultery rules If we rules could there, just follow the leadership of David Squashy Haldeman, I feel like this would get us back, back to that literal happy valley that we have lost so long ago without obviously the colonialism right now the the events around the murder of uh, jocelyn hay uh, may be familiar to uh, film fans because that is the subject matter of the film uh, and novel uh, white mischief uh, the uh, novel is by james fox and the uh, movie from 1987 is directed by michael radford and charles dance plays uh, jocelyn hay edina sackville appears in it as like a tertiary character uh, but it is more about that love triangle than it is about uh, Adina's relationship uh, right. with uh, Jocelyn Hay. There are other exciting cameos that I referred to earlier. Uh, you know, she'll be at a party in, in England and there uh, Cecil Beaton, or I guess Cecil Beaton and uh, uh, Stephen Spender will be party guests and uh, uh, Cecil will be getting stick for being obviously gay until the uh, part of the party when all the men have to wear dresses and he makes his look the best. And Ken, a, a tradecraft hut a cameo is that Ewan Wallace's best friend is Stuart Menzies. He's the best man at uh, their wedding, at the wedding of Ewan Wallace and Adina. And uh, he goes on to marry Adina's sister, Avi, who, you will notice a theme here, is not faithful to Stuart Menzies. And so, therefore, when he goes on to become the chief of MI6, C, uh, who inspires Ian Fleming's M, and also inspires the central theme of infidelity that is the uh, backstory that drives George Smiley. So this one person is, is basically the model for a couple of key uh, characters from uh, spy fiction and intertwined with Adina Sackville's uh, life. I mean, I, I feel like John le Carre may have known more people who were cheating on their husbands than just... You can argue that with Francis Osborne. All right, I will. The, yeah. Well, I have, a, I have a fun fact that you can draw in if you're looking for a, a possible Trail of Cthulhu lead. After uh, separating from Adina, Jocelyn Hay becomes a fascist. He joins Mosley's, uh, Oswald Mosley's Union of Fascists in 1934 and uh, is just sort of fascisting around in Kenya until the war starts where they're like, well, I'm a fascist, but I'm a British fascist. And he, however, is cleverly not given a command anywhere near the Germans. He's sort of put in charge of Kenya for the war and um, uh, stays out of it. Right. And Adina knows uh, Mosley as well, but knew him and was friends with him during his early phase as uh, sort of a commie. So, yeah, right. He had a, a bit of a, a flip there. Yeah, he he began as a as a as one of the but the coming young socialist uh, things, just like Mussolini did, and then yes. similarly so, flipped over. Yeah. So when you get to that part in the book, I'm like, oh no, she's friends with. Oh no, okay, that's fine. We can, we can give her a pass. She's, it's, it's still not fine. <laughs> but at any rate, she's 
Uh, also uh, a role model to a young Tallulah Bankhead who comes over to uh, Britain to uh, become a theatrical star and uh, models some of her life and personality and libertinism on uh, Adina. Were she, they were they buddies, or was it just that she read about her in the papers and they said were, they were pals? They were oh, uh, nice, fast friends. That's good to know. She was a subject of literature and film uh, long before White Mischief, because as I suggested, she was a, a big fixture of uh, the news. Uh, so there's a 1920 novel called uh, The Green Hat, which is uh, clearly based on her, and that was turned into A Woman of Affairs a 1928 uh, movie with uh, Greta Garbo. And also the name The Bolter comes from the uh, delightfully uh, satirical social novels of Nancy Mitford. Uh, They uh, feature an intertwining cast of characters. uh, And so the novels Love in a Cold Climate, The Pursuit of Love, and Don't Tell Alfred all have a character called The Bolter, who uh, shockingly got divorced, went off to the... uh, to the colonies and occasionally comes back with a lover in tow and uh, also clearly based on Adina Sackville. So we've already mentioned that uh, this is Trail of uh, Cthulhu territory. Uh, It's the 30s. The scenario set against the Happy Valley group in Kenya is sort of crying out to be done. This is different than Lovecraftian characters in that they have heard of sex and are having it and having a lot of it. But uh, you could definitely uh, work that thread into it, and uh, you can either pick the usual things that Lovecraft associates with uh, Africa, or I would think more interestingly, uh, you know, uh, switch it up, put some Migo in there or something. Yeah. Once you're out there in Kenya, uh, obviously there's ample Cthulhu Mythos stuff, thanks to the Mass of Nirlathotep having a whole chapter set in Nairobi, so you can tie them in with it. Once you have uh, young indolent aristocrats uh, messing around, breaking down social conventions, shouting with joy, throwing aside morals. Well, that's where the great old ones come in. Lovecraft told us that. We all know it. And so we have the possibility for within the Happy Valley set or on the edges of the Happy Valley set, a a bunch of of, uh, rabble-rousing mythos good timers. And you have to uh, infiltrate that socially, or else you're just going to be found dead in a jeep, just like uh, somebody's lover. Right, and if you, uh, uh, you know, if you ask too many questions of Adina Sackville, uh, if it's during the David Squashy Haldeman years, uh, which is most of the 30s, the shoot might be at you, and you might change your mind about it. So she dies in 1955 of uterine cancer. She lives to the age of 62, uh, which uh, in some ways is not very long, but she packed, I think, uh, four or five different lives into that. Uh, yeah. Six decades. So, so I'd highly recommend uh, the Bolter as not just a profile of this person, but as all great biographies are, a uh, account of an era and its um, mores and byways. Well, once we've accounted for an era with all of its mores and byways, it is time to say bye and go aways uh, into a commercial and perhaps into another segment. The Best of Askfageln is now available at Drive-Thru RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Stop this podcast from losing power by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Mark Eliotti. Scott Jones. Randy Ship, Ryan Lassiter. And Tenant Reed. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Stephanie McClelland asks Ken and Robin, without getting too much into the real story of Adolfo Costanzo, what about modern magicians as henchmen serving a big bad? Uh, and I guess we do have to get a little bit into the real story of Adolfo Costanzo, or else that name will just hang there. Right. So, but this isn't crime blotter, so no. So uh, we're, we're gonna. We're, we're, and the briefly. reason not to go into a whole thing, as Stephanie uh, implies, is that this is really freaking gruesome. This is disgusting. Yeah. If you were around in the late '80s, early '90s, you perhaps heard of the Matamoros murder cult. This was Adolfo Costanzo's project. He was the head of it. He was the the godfather, they called him. Uh, he was a Cuban-American. He was initiated into Palo Mayombe, which is a uh, Afro-Caribbean religion from Cuba that has a, what do I want to say, a laissez-faire attitude towards ritual and sacrifice. It is very much, you don't want to say Nietzschean about something that probably predated Nietzsche, but it's very, everyone picks their own morality and you move through it, and it's not the god's business to tell you one way or the other. This leads it, like so many similar movements, to be a collecting ground for people who want to kill animals and get away with it, as opposed to the sort of um, more controlled and uh, morally strictured ritual sacrifices of Santeria. And uh, you get a bad reputation even amongst other Afro-Cuban practitioners. They say that all Mayombists are devil worshippers, and Palo Mayombists say not all Palo Ambists, and they've already lost the fight there. But definitely Adolfo Costanzo was a devil worshiper. He picked as his god the uh, the, the devil of uh, Palo Mayombe's pantheon and became a ritual magician for cartelistas in Mexico. Uh, he set up a cult. He had three sub-magi, I guess, who would help him out with the ritual. The rituals were bloody animal sacrifices, often of very expensive animals, because the bigger and more impressive the animal you killed, the better the 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 gods liked it. You put yeah, them so in you're your- killing lion cubs, it's even somehow worse and more horrible than if you just bought some chickens down at the market. Right, yeah. Then they all go into your pot, your nganga, which is where all the magic power resides. And of course, you know, even lion cubs don't uh, settle your hash once you are into this kind of thing, and Adolfo Costanzo starts killing people. There are at least 23 ritual murders in Mexico City between 84 and 87 that are connected to him. Uh, the Mexican police say there are up to 70 ritual murders, some of which may be his. We know about 23 that were, their bones were found in his house type knowledge. And then he, in, he kills seven members of the Calzada drug trafficking family because he is now using his power to advance 
in the ranks of uh, the nar- narco-traficantes. He moves to Matamoros, which is convenient to the border, where he picks up a godmother, although it's not super sexual. Uh, Adolfo was uh, gay, and he only had sex with ladies for ritual purposes. And uh, she joins him and sort of inspires another 20 ritual killings. And then finally, they ritually kill an American medical student named Mark Kilroy, who comes from a family with pull in Texas. And they lean on the Mexican cops until they basically turn Costanzo's life over. They they find his Nganga in Matamoros. Geraldo Rivera gets involved. It's a big deal. And they finally uh, track him to an apartment building in Mexico City. And he orders his uh, sub-mage to kill him with a shotgun rather than let him be captured by the cops which is what happens. And that is right. sort of and, the... And if you're asking yourself, how did he get away with this before then? Remember the extent to which all Mexican police agencies and government agencies are penetrated by the various cartels. And in this case, four members of the Federales were members of his murder cult. So right there, you have a, a great deal of, of, of shelter for him. So that is the basic story of Adolfo Costanzo, and you can go look up more about it to the extent you have appetite for cauldrons full of human bones. I feel like that's about enough of that. And uh, so what does it mean then, Robin, per Stephanie McClellan's question, if you have a big bad and their sidekick, their assistant, maybe their ambitious vizier, which is sort of what Costanzo feels like, is even worse? Is that narratively satisfying, or do you have to make your big bad so bad that even his mass murdering Satanist major domo is not as bad as him. Where, where, where do we fall in that? Well, I think you're going to first of all pick uh, as players the person that you most hate. Uh, it's not necessarily and, and most fear and most want to see destroyed. It's not necessarily has to be at the top of the uh, org chart. You don't care about right, that. Yeah. You care about how afraid you are of someone and how awful they are. And so you could easily create a scenario in which the main bad guy is the henchman so that he, you're not worried about upstaging the, the main antagonist. But another way that you can do it is simply an escalation, right? That you've, you antagonize a cartel and then you discover, oh, wait a minute, who are these guys who are being sent up to uh, Albuquerque? The, the terrifying assassins turn out to be uh, also ritual magicians. Uh, this brings us to the question of what genre we're doing this in. And I think ideally, Someone like this is ironically more terrifying in a game that does not establish the occult as part of its everyday reality. That if, you know, you're playing a, a horror game where the occult is real, that has a completely different emotional resonance. It's not as aberrant and awful and terrible as it is to us in, in real life. Uh, but good luck finding a group of people who just want to play straight up non-nerd-troped narco-terrorists or right. crime game. So the reality is... Mindhunter is the RPG, not actually a thing. Yeah. And so uh, the reality is you're almost certainly going to be playing uh, something these ripped from the headline stuff is then nerd-troped. And the the ideal version, uh, the ideal game in in my basket of games is certainly the Esoterrorist, right? This where you are sort of Tom Clancy-style characters up against occult, often criminals who are trying to bring demons in across the uh, the membrane is basically... You know, the, the book literally says narco-terrorists is, is one of the possible uh, right, groups yeah. of people who can have an esoterror cell. So it fits right into that. And there is always the question, though, of how knowing 
the esoterrorists are of the actual supernatural reality. That some of them, most of them think that sorcery is real. That's why they're doing it. But they're essentially being duped by the demons on the other side. And they never actually get to work real magic anyway, except the magic that pulls the demons into the other side. So it's basically a tailor-made uh, for that uh, sort of situation. Uh, but there's all sorts of other modern horror games uh, that could bring in this real-life horror that sort of gives a weight yet also awfulness. So, for example, Unknown Armies, I would think, would also be an, an ideal platform to uh, explore this sort of real-life super-nasty sorcerer henchman characters. Yeah, with, with Unknown Armies, you want to get into the notion that I mean, because Unknown Armies is about how far are you willing to go to get power, the notion there is always farther you can go becomes an interesting element to drop in because there will be players who say, well, I mean, I'm not going to execute innocent American medical students or lovely uh, uh, Mexican uh, flower sellers, but this guy executed a bunch of narco traficantes and got magic with it, and we hate them too, so why not chop them up and put them in our nganga and become invisible and bulletproof and get to cross a national border without being detected. Those sound like great powers to get. And so you could, the the, the really terrible thing uh, with some of these games is that he becomes a role model in ways uh, to, to the player characters. Uh, another variant way to keep the sort of aberrance that you're talking about is if you introduce this into a primarily science fiction-y setting. So if you're running, say, Moondust Men, in which it's all UFOs and aliens, and this one case is, oh, no, this is legitimate black magic, there's no aliens involved, but we don't know why black magic works, that could be a moment of what the hell that you could extrapolate from. Uh, likewise, if you've been running a nice black agents game in which the vampires are very clearly medical or very clearly scientific in some way, and Satan is not on the page. And then, Oh, one of the vampires has got this Mayombist uh, ritual murderer as his sidekick. He can do a good impression of the devil when he has to. Yeah. Right. And so what's going on with that? Uh, how is, how, how does that work? Is this some sort of extra vampire power that he unleashes or is there also the devil? And that could be like the doorway through which you introduce a proper satanic vampire, a Dracula type figure. So you've been, you know, following along all this uh, medical evidence and, you know, Soviet bio testing and whatnot. You run into this, uh, uh, this Mayombist and his rituals do everything he says it does. You think, well, a vampire can do all those things. And then you realize it's because he's, you know, sold himself to Kadiem Pembe, who is the Mayombist uh, Satan that Costanzo served, but is also, it turns out, a multi-hundred-year-old vampire who, you know, fetched up in Cuba during, you know, Spanish colonialism and has been feeding on people and terrifying cultists ever since. And that his, you know, maybe he was killed at some point you know, way back in 1898 by Admiral Dewey or somebody. And now he's been summoned back into life by this assistant witch fellow. And now, and now you've got a new chapter of your, of your campaign to follow. Right. And another thing that you can do to sort of change the flavor a bit is alter the cultural context, because of course uh, there are both uh, psychopaths, serial killers and magicians in almost every culture, or uh -huh. you can have a situation where, you know, people are multinational now. So you're a Serbian arms dealer warlord might have acquired somebody who uh, wasn't killed 
after the uh, Constanzo uh, situation, and he may be, you know, hiding out in uh, Eastern Europe where, you know, crimes committed, horrible crimes committed elsewhere in another hemisphere, uh, people don't care so much about. So uh, you can uh, easily take that formula and uh, drop it into any hyper-violent uh, crime uh, gang anywhere and uh, be uh, more of a surprise, right? If you're, if you're dealing with narco-terrorists and you kind of know uh, this element of it down there, it's you might be, oh, let's wait until the magicians show up. But, you know, if you're dealing, you know, with the drug dealers in, in Thailand, it might be uh, somewhat surprising uh, whether it's local shamans or, again, uh, an out-of-context uh, Paolo Mayambiest who uh, uh, shows up. And I, and I guess once out-of-context Paolo Mayambiest show up, it's probably the better part of valor to uh, take yourself somewhere else, such as through a commercial into another hut. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing It's time once again for a, a fresh, new, exciting episode of Ken's Bookshelf. Ken, because you were uh, once again on the road to uh, a place familiar to uh, listeners of the show, which, of course, is Providence, Rhode Island. And you were there for the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, uh, the Providence edition, not the Portland edition, which is the sort of bigger razzmatazz one that has been counter-programmed by Origins, of all things much to my chagrin. So uh, I had a plane ticket. I swapped it over for Providence and I went out to celebrate H.P. Lovecraft's birthday, 131st birthday in the city on the Narragansett Bay. So good fun had by all until the hurricane came in and ruined everyone's fun. So uh, it's a, a somewhat smaller pile than usual. So we have a rare single segment uh, segment of Ken's bookshelf. And it begins with Apparitions of Things to Come, Edward Bellamy's Tales of Mystery and Imagination, edited by Franklin Rosemont. What do we need to know about Edward Bellamy? Uh, Edward Bellamy was the great socialist science fiction author of the turn of the century. His magnum opus, Looking Backward, was basically a utopia. You could imagine as the socialist version of Gurdensback's Ralph 124C41, in which it's just, look at the future! Everything's great! Well, it turns out Edward Bellamy had more strings to his bow than that, and he told sort of um, some stories of science fiction uh, in addition to that one and stories of 
I guess you might call it akin to horror or uh, dread, that kind of thing. So just fun to see what got Edward Bellamy worked up besides, you know, class inequality. Uh, next, we have Faunus, the decorative imagination of Arthur Machen, edited by James Mackin. No relation, and it's I assume. A, it's an I instead of an E, so it's yeah. totally unrelated. Uh, so the decorative imagination, where, where are we headed there? Uh, Faunus is actually a, uh, it, I believe it's either annual or biannual. It's a magazine, semi-academic study of Mackin uh, goes into it. And it was guided along for a long time by a, a great a British author named, I believe, uh, Doug Valentine. And there's a lot of good stuff in it. This is basically academic essays on Mackin as well as things by Mackin that uh, were uncovered by the busy uh, beavers of the Faunus Society. So it's the decorative imagination is more of a argument as opposed to the theme of the anthology. What it is, it's a collection of of studies of and works minor works by Mackin and is well worth having just because Mackin is well worth studying. Uh, next, we come to Lost Worlds of Africa by James Wellard. Uh, this is about, uh, or by rather, a guy that goes into North Africa, primarily in Algeria, and uh, meets up with the Berbers and the Touaregs and uh, talks about various tribal groups of, of those nations that are basically, when he was writing, had been sort of uh, sidelined and marginalized by the coming of modernity. And there is a big chapter, which is the reason I got it on the Garamantes, which is the North African civilization that uh, is described by Herodotus. Apparently back in the day, you could drive chariots around uh, the Sahara and raid the coastal cities. And you wouldn't starve to death when you pulled back into the desert because it wasn't so deserty yet. So uh, the Garamantes are, have always fascinated me. They're they're very interesting, and the existence of a chapter on the Garamantes meant that I'm happy to pick up the whole Lost Worlds of Africa. And uh, when is James Wellard exploring and writing? Uh, the book came out in 1967, and I assume that meant Wellard was probably tooling around Africa after the war. Next, we come to a pamphlet, The Town of Boston in 1722, and it's a pamphlet by the Patton Restaurant from 1922. Yeah, that... That was a dollar, and I just enjoyed the notion of having the Patton Restaurant um, almost 100 years ago saying, hey, Boston was a thing 200 years ago. Let's just celebrate our, you know, probably their birthday as a restaurant by coming out with this little handy thing. And it's mostly just sketches and elevations. There's a map on the cover, which isn't super great, but it's a map. Um, it, was, it was a dollar. It was a, a more of a curio of 1922 for me than it was a, a document of 1722. A bit of ephemera. Mm -hmm. uh, next, we come to The Meanings of Architecture, Buildings and Writings by John Wellborn Root, edited by Donald Hoffman. Yeah, this is a book that I found, along with many of these books, in uh, a bookstore called Cellar Stories, which is the best used bookstore in Providence by far. And I found that book in their architecture section, which is a section I, I do not always go to when I go to the seller stories and I pull it out and I showed it to the lady uh, and she says, oh, was that on the shelves? <laughs> which <laughs> impressed me. Her argument was that normally nice books like that get stolen if they're not kept in the locked case. But apparently this had not been stolen yet. John Wellborn Root, a great Chicago architect, Worked with uh, Daniel Burnham, uh, famously the man who planned uh, Chicago's expansion in the, the turn of the century. And Wellborn Root was going to be the guy that designed the 1893 
World's Fair, but he died before he could. And so Burnham took it over and did it in the Beaux-Arts style that became famous. This is the other half of that equation. And it's a bunch of writings by Rutt on architecture. It's a bunch of buildings of his, many of which have been knocked down since. And uh, I love Rutt as an architect. I love him as a Chicagoan. And it turns out that he had his own little mystical corners. He was a fan of what he called uh, true Egyptian geometries. And uh, once you hear that phrase, you're like, oh, I know what you're doing, John Wellborn Rudd. It's not just your partner that talks to angels. You're up to something, too. And so uh, I I have made John Wellborn Rudd uh, a focus of, I believe, a mage scenario that I did in the old Chicago by Night book. So uh, I'm very, very happy uh, to have a big book of John Wellborn Rudd, even if it had to not be stolen from Seller Stories Bookstore. So if, if a beloved Patreon backer were to ask you for, for more on this subject, you would, you would have it. I would have ample information on John Wellborn Root. Yes, we would talk about architecture, which is somewhat like dancing about movies. Right. I guess. We do have an architecture hut. <laughs> right. Next, we come to Codename Dora by Shandor Rado. Uh, this is an autobiography of a guy who was a Hungarian who spied for the Soviets during World War II. Uh, when it was good to spy for the Soviets because he spied on the hated Nazis. And um, uh, he was part of the Red Orchestra, the uh, the Soviet intelligence and counterintelligence organization. And then I believe that he had to get a hop, skip, and a jump out of Hungary because uh, the Soviets didn't want people who were good spies littering the place. But this is his uh, World War II era memoir, and it was a lovely edition of it, and so I picked it up. Uh, next, we come to an eye at the top of the world, the terrifying legacy of the Cold War's most daring operation by Pete Takeda. And I guess the first question uh, this answers is, what was the Cold War's most daring operation? According to Pete Takeda, and why not, it was an operation called Operation Hat. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very you terrifying just, hat. You can imagine the CIA guy just like, I don't know, call it Operation Hat. I'm, oh, I don't feel good. I look around the room. What am I going to call this operation? Yeah. Oh, See, Operation Desk, like, Operation oh, Pencils, Operation, oh, Operation Hat, whatever. Uh, operation Hat was the emplacement of a monitoring device, a electronic telemetry device on top of a mountain in the Himalayas, uh, on the mountain Nanda Devi, which is the mountain that sits on top of uh, the Ganges River, basically. It's the headwaters of the Ganges River. There's a big mountain that is surrounded by other little mountains, uh, making it very hard to get to. And so the CIA basically teamed up with some Indian mountain climbing experts to climb up on top of Mount of uh, Nanda Devi and put a uh, listening device aimed at China to detect Chinese missile launches and nuclear tests. Uh, this is before we had satellites, basically. So the CIA and these uh, Indian mountaineers uh, went up Nanda Devi in 1965, and they put the listening device there. And you might say, well, what's so dangerous about that? I mean, it's a very dangerous mountain to climb and everything. Uh, the listening device was powered by eight pounds of plutonium. <laughs> okay, eight pounds of plutonium. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. And best part, then the CIA lost it. There was an avalanche that knocked the um, uh, the detector off of its perch. This is why this is why you don't put eight pounds of plutonium on a mountain. Yeah, yeah, you should. I mean, not. I'm not a CIA operative, but I can tell you that. You can tell me that. Well, that's why you're not a CIA operative. You don't think big. <laughs> I can recognize obvious bad ideas in that. Terrifically terrible ideas, and I, 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 I want to know: Did anyone? You know, while they were on their way up the mountain, say, hey, you know what would be a bad idea? But I guess not. And so anyway, no one knows where the plutonium is. They think it's in a glacier now. 
and the author of this book, uh, Pete Takeda, is a mountain climber, and this is more a story of his climb up Nanda Devi to look for the site of the plutonium than it is a history of Operation Hat, although obviously Operation Hat definitely gets a look in, and he interviews uh, fairly extensively the Indian mountaineer who led uh, the Indian half of the expedition. So it's a great book, I think, for the feeling of being up on those mountains. So if you're running a, a Fall of Delta Green adventure that takes place up in the Himalayas, whether it be Operation Mallory from the book or or the, the real version of Operation Hat, uh, the real reason you needed eight pounds of plutonium up there was to take out Migo. It was not to power some ludicrous rocket tracker. Then this would give you a, a, a lot of good sense memory and, and felt experience. I, I And it's very engagingly written. It, it does not go as deep into the CIA part as perhaps I want, but I think it certainly goes deep enough for a game. Right. And let's not worry about that plutonium because glaciers aren't melting. No. And, uh, and uh, hot plutonium doesn't sink down, down, down ever deeper through the ice. That wouldn't happen to hit the Ganges River and poison umpty-ump million people. That would never happen, Robin. That's crazy talk. So next we come to a, a genre of book that I have a big soft spot for, uh, and this is the Rhode Island version of it. Rhode Island Legends, Haunted Hallows and Monsters Lairs by M.E. Riley McGreen. And I assume that this is your uh, roundup of local uh, ghost stories in Elliptony? Absolutely. And it was purchased from the wonderful people at the H.P. Lovecraft Arts and Sciences shop in the arcade in Providence. It's a great little uh, bookstore. It's stuffed with all your Lovecraftian goodness. It has the common decency to carry my books, so I love it even more. It has a bit of role-playing, but a lot of uh, mythos fun, as well as other uh, allied texts, such as Books of Rhode Island Legends. There was many to choose from. This is the one that I chose, mostly because it sort of was not just haunted Providence, but it sort of spun out and had lots of fun stuff about Rhode Island all the way. Ghosts of the Bridgewater Triangle by Christopher Balzano. Now, I have not checked this, but I'm hoping that Christopher Balzano was the speaker who introduced me to the concept of the Bridgewater Triangle at Dragon Con several years ago. I there, There's a track... Um, I forget. It's the opposite of the skeptics track. They have a skeptics track and a absolutely not skeptics track, paranormal or whatever it is. And I went to that to sit in on a panel just to hear because I, I did not recognize what the Bridgewater Triangle is. And apparently it is a mystical zone in Massachusetts near the Huckamuck Swamp that is uh, full of abandoned asylums and UFO sightings and ghosts and the whole nine yards. And I will always cherish the presenter saying, it's uh, more of an octagon than it is a triangle. <laughs> and at that point, I would have bought every book he had, except they were all novels. And so it's like, I'm not going to read your novel about the Bridgewater Triangle. Yeah. Write me. It's more when you, when you make a use the lasso ha highlighter in uh, editing an image file. Yeah, it's uh, it's more of an octagon, but it's uh, it, Bridgewater Triangle's a thing. He was skeptical about the, the UFOs, but he knew there was ghosts. So there you are. Um, I love this guy. I love his triangle. So when I saw an actual nonfiction, maybe is pushing the limits of the term, but a nonfiction book of the Bridgewater Triangle and all of its madness, I could not help but snatch it up in memory of the man who I hope was also Christopher Bolzano, because I'd like to believe that he got a couple of nickels right. for the joy that he gave me. Well, I think we can say that when you refer to any polygon 
in a mystical way that it's essentially a triangle. Yeah, right. It's it's Once magically it a triangle. It's an octagon and a triangle. That's exactly that right. Works. It's like the Enneagram, if you will. Right. So finally, let's wind up with the Necronomicon Tarot by Donald Tyson and Anne Stokes. Yeah, Anne Stokes is the illustrator. Donald Tyson is the uh, one imagines whiny occultist, which is the way you want a tarot to be laid down. This is based on his version, uh, Donald Tyson's version of the Necronomicon, and his biographical novel of Abdul Al-Hazrid, which is also doubles as a magical pathworking text. I am not here to tell you that that is the worst imaginable magical path to walk. I feel like if you know who Abdul Al-Hazrid is, you don't need me to tell you that, but don't walk that path. You'll be eaten by an invisible monster. What are you thinking? Uh, this, however, is a full tarot with lots of mythos goodies in it. And it was relatively cheap in a sort of a hippie establishment uh, in Providence where you could get your magic rocks. You could get your saris. You could get your incenses. And it turns out you can get a lot of tarots among them, the Necronomicon tarot, for not a lot of money. Well, uh, next time you're uh, lost for inspiration with your Fall of Delta Green uh, group, you can just randomly draw a card and that's the trouble they'll be in. Exactly. And speaking of that, uh, we've run out of time for this uh, episode, but we'll be back next week uh, with another one, uh, perhaps with some travels in it. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Help us pay off our sorcerer's henchfolk by joining such illustrious backers as... Andrew Cowie. Carrie Shutrick. Christopher Hattie. Dave Trout. And Sean Hoyle. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Festoon yourself with our latest design, Foxy Dragon. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>